Hey, what's up, How About This listeners? It's Mike Stow back again for another episode of How About This, and this is our last episode before we get into our summer programming known as the Summer of Slam. So we wanted to go out in a blood-soaked, gory bloodbath of a bang. Because today, we talk about one of our favorite directors, and this episode is a little different than normal. We're not pitching something for a franchise or a series. We are pitching our take on Quentin Tarantino's movies, and Jordan and I both come up with our own Quentin Tarantino-style movie that he hopefully makes someday. So, sit back, relax, get yourself a $5 milkshake and a big kahuna burger, and get ready to take a journey into... Quentin Tarantino's filmography. What's up, How About This listeners? It's another episode of How About This. I'm Mike Staub, and today we're talking about something, well, that's in about three inches of blood, stuck in a warehouse, (laughs) trying to survive while the rest of your team gets destroyed because of a failed diamond heist but with me today he is mr purple pink blue white beige (laughs) blonde whatever he's all the he's all of the dogs in one he is the full pack mr jordan hugh oh thank you sir uh you've caught me once again having not prepared an epithet but because we're talking about a topic that is near and dear to my heart i'm gonna try to just come up with one just right off the top of my head and my co-host mike staub who knows how to make one mean five dollar milkshake and don't you but forget don't it. don't ask don't ask him how he has to make it though because we we can't tell you no if we told you we'd have to kill you a lot because why well we're not really beating around the bush today we are talking about qt himself mr quentin tarantino and instead of doing something where we would talk about i don't know like hey we're going to talk about what they should do with kill bill or we could talk about what they should do with reservoir dogs or any of that stuff quentin tarantino's movies are mostly for the most part one and done there's really not a series or a franchise in there. And while he does have movies that take place all within the same quote unquote Quentin Tarantino universe, they're all really loosely connected, if connected at all. So we felt that it would be more fun for us as creators, writers, whatever you want to consider us idiots um, to (laughs) professional idiots. Yes, that's right. Professional semi-pro idiots. We figured it would be the best to each come up with our own Quentin Tarantino movie that he would possibly make based on what we love and appreciate about the guy. And we've been fans of his for uh, probably close to 30 years at this point in our lives now. I remember first seeing Quentin Tarantino's movies when I was in late high school, I think was when I first started watching them. I think I started with Reservoir Dogs and kind of made my way through with Pulp Fiction and, and moving on and on. He was clearly, you know, made his splash in Hollywood in the early ni- early to mid 1990s and is still considered one of the most prolific directors in Hollywood today. And what's hilarious about the whole in the whole his whole career is that Quentin Tarantino started off being edgy and offensive and gory and bloody and blunt. And I want to say, I don't know, is, would you consider his films crass? No, I, I don't. Oh, think you don't so. think so? You don't think so? I, What's funny is, you know, he you're right. He he is considered to be so transgressive and incendiary. But in my opinion, Quentin Tarantino is actually more artful and less crass and sort of less vulgar than a lot of the auteur directors that were coming up in the 1970s, like Stanley Kubrick and Scorsese and the rest of those guys. I mean, uh, I think 
Quentin's movies for the most part are like high art and are either right in line with those and, and probably more tasteful in many ways. You're, you're right. Actually, you know what I, I always think about his movies is that Quentin Tarantino makes high art versions of B trash. Yeah. What he does is he takes genres and, you know, long fabled genres and stuff that was like part of the old style of making films, the gritty on film cameras doing stuff that, you know, he's making martial arts movies. He's making war movies. He's making Westerns. These are movies for the most part in the era that he grew up watching them that were not always the top of the top. But Quentin Tarantino has been able to take these B-movie kind of genres, you know, but based off of pulp fiction, right? Based off of pulp books and turn this into, like you said, high art and really artistic stuff. It's a He's a man who obviously loves the, the cinema he loves sure. movies and he loves great stuff and he loves bad stuff it's funny when you when you listen to quentin tarantino and a lot of directors like him the edgar wrights of the world the quentin tarantinos mm. when you listen to them talk about film the movies they love are the movies they grew up with we talk about del toro a lot and he's even like if you talk to him like what are your favorite movies it's like he likes monster movies and and these gory, you know, kaiju stuff. Tarantino loves these gory martial arts movies, stuff like that. That's what like he grew up watching. And then you got guys like Edgar Wright who love his zombie movies and and buddy cop films. And like they're taking these genres that are typically looked down on by the rest of Hollywood and cranking out amazing, amazing stuff. But I still think Quentin Tarantino, even in this day and age, it's crazy because Quentin Tarantino has never got, never not been offensive to some degree. It feels like that's just been his career and he's offending different people now, but he's still offensive. Yeah, I think Quentin, to your point, uh, takes any one of these genres and in his exploration of that particular genre, whatever that might be, whatever blend he might be using, takes it to its sort of next level, which typically is an opera, yes. not not a sung opera, though, man, that would be fucking badass, wouldn't it? I but think that would be amazing. He takes, you know, black exploitation or the Western or, you know, take any one of his films. And he says, well, what does an opera version of this look like? A, a grand version of this, a celebration of this uh, that tells a, a big story writ large, but with these fine details and that certain style that he has that just really produces a thing of true beauty. I think Quentin Tarantino is a, a rare talent. I, I have rarely struck out over a recording of this episode more than I did for this one because I was like wow we're taking on Quentin Tarantino that's like you know yeah look I I have loved recording episodes about I don't know Bioshock and Shovel Knight and Batman and Spider-Man and whatever and those properties are are things of of immense beauty and 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 you know there's there's tremendous art that is there but Tarantino I don't know for some reason for me it's like it's in another level it's at another level for me like his level of film the the amount of knowledge and background that has gone into making the Tarantino films, it is, uh, it's intimidating. Oh, absolutely. Because it's one of those things where we're talking about a director, right? We're not talking about a franchise. We're not talking right. about something that has some sort of source material to work, work off of. We're, we're kind of, we're, we're being a little gutsy here, I think. And I think that we're going to be respectful to this, to his legacy so far, because we're such big fans of his. And ultimately, I think we're, people who like to consume entertainment of this value that Tarantino, his whole persona, the way he makes films, he's not trying to please anyone really. But I mean, he wants to make the films he wants to make. 
And that's why he does it his way. And that's why he'll always do it his way. And I think that's why ultimately he's successful is because he just wants to make the movies he wants. And Quentin Tarantino likes to watch fun movies. Now, most of his movies for the most part are revenge films. He loves revenge films. Like they're, they're like his favorite type of thing. If you hear him talk Mm -hmm. about it, he loves making a revenge film. He loves a revenge story. And pretty much most of the stuff he's made is in that vein. But we're obviously big fans of his. You know, we, we started, I started with the first one, started with Reservoir Dogs. You know, I thought Reservoir Dogs, even at that point in time, I remember being like in my teens and just going like, this is so good. And then it seems like every movie starts to get a little better and better. And I actually think that favorite of his at this point might be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's close. Mm-hmm. It's close. I still think Pulp Fiction is very, very hard to compete with. But there are some days like a good Saturday night gore fest and I just want to turn on uh, Kill Bill. So it's like one of those things where it's like there's a there's a Quentin Tarantino movie for like every season and every every style of watching. So what's what do you think of your ex- experience with Tarantino movies and and in general? I'm going to go super niche for a minute and get a little personal. So when I was I was a very awkward like 11, 12 year old and I didn't like have like a ton of friends and whatever, you know, same story as everybody else. I feel sometimes I was living with my grandmother and we had just kind of gotten hooked up to the Internet and all that. Yes, it was it was that time that makes you feel old, doesn't it? And I I really I had Internet for the first time. This matters. Yes. And I found these chat rooms on AOL. Do you remember the old AOL chat rooms? Oh, I remember. So the chat room I found was called Guess Movie by Plot. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, Guess Movie by Plot. People listening will probably have no fucking clue what this is, but it was like an AOL community's chat room where movie geeks would get together in the chat room, all text format, and someone would type in caps the plot to a movie without saying the title, and everybody else had to try to guess what it was. And I thought this was the fucking coolest thing ever, but there was no way they wanted to play with like a little 12-year-old boy, so I pretended to be like a 20-something-year-old guy who was like a film student, and I had created like a whole fake identity for myself. That's the end of it, baby. It was the time, you know, so this was like 97, 98. I mean, there was hardly someone more popular than Quentin Tarantino. So there would be a lot of discussion, not just about his films, but about what he had done to film about his contribution. So, of course, I went to Blockbuster and my parents never monitored anything I watched, including my grandmother. I rented the films that were available at that time, which I guess was just uh, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown. So I, I started in order. And I was way too young to be watching those movies. And and maybe as a result, they left this huge, huge impression on me. But of course, I was a 12-year-old boy. These became my favorite movies. I was like, this is this is unreal. And I've always approached Quentin's movies, all of his new projects, I think with that same glee, that same sort of naughty appetite that I had when I was 12, where I was like, I'm going to be a little bad and I'm going to go see a Quentin Tarantino movie. And to me, nothing was more exciting. And he excels at making you really want it. You know, he, he's marketed like there's going to be a limited number of these movies and they are really special. And each one is just so exciting. And they really are. They are somehow yeah. both fun and meaningful. They blow your head off every time and they seem to just keep getting bigger. And you're right. You, you said it very eloquently a moment ago. There's kind of a Quentin Tarantino movie for every occasion. If you want something that is kind of something that's more or more quiet and kind of ruminates on humanity, you could watch something like a Jackie Brown, which is a little closer to like a high art piece, right? If you want just a, a single location drawing room 
Bloodfest, right? You can watch a Reservoir Dogs or a Hateful Eight and get something out of that. If you want to look for deeper meaning in terms of his commentary on society, you could look at a Django. You know, you could look at a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So he, he's got something for everybody. But honestly, I don't think there's any film more watchable than Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2, which aren't my favorite Quentin movies, but by God, I have seen them both an incredible number of times. I think that's because Kill Bill, especially Volume 1, and I love Volume 2 too, but Volume 2 is more story-driven and less like action-driven. Uh, I think what makes Kill Bill Volume 1 so so watchable is that I think it's one of the quicker movies that he's made. Uh, I'm not sure if it's one of the short. I know the shortest is Death Death Proof, right? Which I also love. Yeah. People don't like that one as much. I think it's great. It's just a, it's a simple concept, right? It's a simple martial arts based revenge movie with awesome characters and, and a great story and amazing performances and just fun. It's just a lot of fun. You know, it's his it's a blast. Tri- it's his tribute to what Game of Death, the Bruce Lee film. I think so, there's, a, there's a whole lot in that Kill Bill pie. I mean, he touches yeah. on so many different films and types of martial art films. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because there's a there's a bit of anime in there. There's a a bit of kung fu kung fu sure, movies the, in there. The fight you with know. Bud is kind of a western yeah. revenge thriller. I mean, it kind of it goes through everything. Yeah, no, he really just packed it all in there. It's like it's like he's trying to make the perfect fan film, uh, you know, as like yeah. these tributes, and he's just so good at it. Uh, yeah, and, well, that's it. He's kind of the super fan of all film. Yeah. He's a super yeah. fan of like all film. He's like, um, he's like if Kevin Smith was serious, <laughs> do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like if, if, uh, you know, someone said, listen, I've literally watched everything and all my movies are kind of a wink nod tribute to just all the film that's ever been made before them because Quentin is nothing if not a historian of film as well. And he says all the time, and he's been quoted as saying, I steal from everything. Yeah, which is is fine because that's kind of the, that's how art should be. We all borrow from each other. Anyone who goes out there, like as a musician, if I went out there and been like, hey, all my music's wholly original. I know it's not true. And not saying that I'm ripping off people, but it's coming from somewhere. We're all pulling from this kind of creative soup yeah. And Tarantino's not ashamed to admit it. It's like, yeah, of course I'm going to make a movie called The Hateful Eight because I love The Magnificent Seven. Of course I'm going to make a movie called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because I probably love Once Upon a Time in New York and in the West and in Mexico. So <laughs> it's just like, why not do that, right? Why not Why not just at least pay tribute to the films that you loved and the films that you grew up watching? I'm going to make a movie called Inglorious Bastards because I love the Inglorious Bastards movie and I love a gritty war film. And across the board, Quentin just does his version of every single genre. Now, he's made two two Westerns, even though they're very, very different. One is like a snow Western, which is less of a revenge story and more of of a single room bloodbath, like you said. Yeah, it's like a drawing room murder mystery. It's a very yeah. odd movie, but I, I love it. Yeah. Uh, and and then you have like Django Unchained, which is like a revenge Western film, which is right. obviously a blast to watch. Uh, you have Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, which are your martial arts movies. The Glorious Bastards is your amazing World War II war film that still has some of the best moments of tension in a film I think I've ever seen. Mm. And then you have uh, Pulp Fiction is just... Pulp Fiction is just a... I don't really know where you would throw Pulp Fiction. It's a celebration of a celebration of California underworld, pulpy, drug-related, crime-related um, intrigue. Really, it's it's all that. Ultimately, it's sort of a noir. It just doesn't yeah. have a mystery yeah. element to it. Yeah. It just has this kind of like lurid, yeah, pulp quality. He's made many movies since Pulp Fiction. 
a lot of folks still consider Pulp Fiction to be his greatest. I think part of that is because Pulp Fiction is very much about the pastiche yeah. of all the genres kind of combined together. I mean, there is no location in any of his films more Tarantino than that Jack Rabbit Slim's restaurant, where yeah. it's just kind of like we are in the museum of old Hollywood yeah. and we're sitting in the back of this old Cadillac and I'm drinking a milkshake while Hollywood kind of luridly dances around me. I mean, that is Quentin Tarantino. Exactly. And I feel like many a diner conversation have happened over his films sure, by people sure. like us, obviously, because Quentin Tarantino loves nothing more than a good diner scene, as we've seen in multiple films. Right. And I actually love the diner scene in Death Proof, which is underrated. But um, of course, we're thinking also Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, etc. Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, uh, twice in Pulp Fiction, really, if you count the uh, if you count mm -hmm. that diner. Uh, even the bar yeah, scene, sort of the wraparound scene, yeah. Even the the bar scene in in Glorious Bastards. It's like these are all like he likes to show these scenes of characters sitting around a table, in kind of weird, stressful environments, and it's actually very, very interesting to see that. And I think that kind of becomes like part of his. It's something that you want to see in every Tarantino movie, just like you want to see a bloodbath at some point in every Tarantino movie. You want yeah. to see some sort of bloodbath. You also definitely want to see some sort of really strange, stressful, awkward diner conversation or food-related uh, meal conversation, mm -hmm. uh, which is also very important. But in terms of the films, uh, which ones would you say are your favorites? So... It's very hard to top Pulp Fiction for me. I mm -hmm. think I gravitated towards that film immediately just because I, I, for me, Pulp Fiction's like the epitome of cool. Yeah. When I think of a cool yeah. movie, Pulp Fiction is really it. Um, and I, I, I often struggle with like, is this movie good or is it just cool? And ultimately the answer is that it's both. Actually, it's better than good. It's, it's excellent. And when it's on, I, I constantly just, you know, watch it to the end. I've, I'm fascinated with it. I love the broken up narrative that takes place in disjointed time. I love the individual performances in Pulp Fiction. It's usually my top. And it was my top for years until Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out. And the only reason for me that Once Upon a Time really takes it, other than I think the best soundtrack of all time, and of course, Tarantino is noted for music yeah. in, his, in his films, is that once Upon a Time in Hollywood has this really aching, terrific ending where, of course, history has been revised. Spoilers for these films, by the way, of course. Duh, stop fucking listening if you haven't actually seen these movies. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has this brilliant revised ending where, you know, Sharon Tate and her, her friends are not killed. In fact, the attackers go over to <laughs> the wrong uh, house. You know, they go to the wrong house. They go to where, why am I blanking on characters? Cliff, Cliff and Cliff. Rick. Cliff yeah. and Rick. They go over to, to Rick's house where Cliff also is and they get their fucking asses handed to them. But then there's this quiet moment in Sharon Tate's driveway where she invites Rick up to the house. And you realize when the credits roll with that sad music playing, oh, the tragedy is we know what really happened. We, the audience, Tarantino just played us. The tragedy is that we live in the worst universe. Yeah. Right? The revised universe was the better universe. He did this to us in Glorious Bastards, but this is actually done better yeah. uh, this time. And that moment for me really seals it. It's, it's that very moment right at the end there and again monster performances from brad pitt who i think is career best in the movie i think so and a leonardo dicaprio performance that is so fun yeah. and full of of vivacious energy so I, I think it is ultimately once upon a time in hollywood probably next would be pulp fiction but i love the other films i think the audience is going to be pretty bored i think i'm in the same boat 
I think it's uh, Pulp Fiction and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are constantly vying for the top spot of my favorite of the Tarantino films for similar reasons. I think that Pulp Fiction is very close to being perfect. Uh, I think yeah. it's something that totally knows what it wants to do, completely, completely succeeds, is completely quotable, filled with amazing performances from actors of all different times and generations. It's this love letter to these gritty, gritty, pulpy crime novels. And it's mm -hmm. got the right amount of blood and drugs and nonsense and insanity that like never really loses you because you've invested into this world that he's built. You're like, well, this is the way things are. And after you go and watch an inglorious bastards and you realize that, okay, so that's his version of world war II. So in his universe, that's how world war II ended. It ended by Hitler getting blown up in a theater by a bunch of like rogue soldiers. You can see why his world is so much grittier and bloodier and darker than you might expect based on how we were taught, how world war ii ended yeah. but on top of that when you when you look at that and you look at once upon a time in hollywood as you you and i have talked about before once upon a time in hollywood anyone who takes that movie as though it's supposed to be literal is doing it wrong because it's called once upon a time in hollywood for a reason it's a fairy tale right as, for example like the depiction of bruce lee in the film of course it's uh, this overblown yeah. crazy performance yeah, yeah it's this overblown crazy performance brad pitt's character cliff booth is not a real person <laughs> right he's a fable he's a fairy tale he might as well be thor or siegfried if you want to use another <laughs> if you want to use another character that tarantino likes to talk about he is he is a a fairy tale character an american fairy tale character of the old west tough guy or sure. the tough guy in general that really never existed and sharon tate not getting killed obviously never happened you know she obviously was killed in real life so the fact that instead of sharon tate being murdered horribly by the manson family this kind of tough you know superhero of a human kills the manson family is kind of the fairy tale i think that many of us would have rather have seen we would have rather seen them get smoked and and obviously torched to death by leonardo dicaprio in a pool <laughs> oh, amazing <laughs> just amazing just that flamethrower it's getting real hot i think the part of what we love about quentin is that he truly does whatever he wants and if mm -hmm. that includes revising history then then so be it uh, i mean if you go through all of his films it's a lot of really unlikely stuff Reservoir, Do Reservoir Dogs, the bloodbath at the end, sure, all the characters die. Maybe that might be his most typical normal ending. Yeah. Pulp, Pulp Fiction, you have a movie where the main character dies in the middle of the movie. Yep. Uh, Jackie Brown, you're bringing in, you know, Pam Greer, who up to that point didn't really have a career uh, since her heyday in the, in the 70s. This was not... Uh, an actress that Hollywood was looking forward to bringing back, but Quentin uh, found a place for her. I mean, yeah. he, he's making the movies that he wants to to make, and I, I think there's something really amazing about that. Yeah, he made a war movie that has almost no war in it. There's no real battle scenes in it, and it's two-thirds not in English. Yes, I know. It's crazy, right? It's crazy that that movie did so well with being as subtitled as it is. And I remember people complaining about that. They were like, oh, it's all subtitles. And I, and I remember saying, like, I've been watching anime for, 15, for like 12 years at this point. I watch so much stuff in subtitles. I don't care. And how how great are the performances in, in, in that movie in general? Like, you know, it gave us a different Brad Pitt, right? We started to yeah. see a shift in Brad Pitt with like Fight Club, but it gave us a very different Brad Pitt in that. This kind of brutal character actor that uh, Brad Pitt had become in that movie. And then obviously Christoph Waltz and his performance was just unbelievable. And then, you know, you get to, you get to like stuff like 
Kill Bill. This is just a fun, over-the-top bloodbath of a of, of a movie. It's a, it's a tribute to action movies and kung fu and superheroes to a degree. And then you get all the way up to stuff like Django, which is which is like the best of the revenge Western films. You know, everyone wants to see Jamie Foxx just light all those people up. Oh yeah, that and, Candyland massacre at the end of that movie is fucking brilliant. It's like it's like you know what Jamie Foxx ends up. You know, Django just the second he like finally finds his like cool in that movie, and he's just like, I'm just gonna smoke all these people. It's like the best thing ever. Seeing Candyland get wrecked and seeing Siegfried right save his what was the name of the Brunhilde Brunhilde right seeing seeing the Siegfried save the Brunhilde is just like that's everything we want once again it's a fairy tale it's it's not it's not real and then the hateful eight is just two three hours of mustache twirling and Mm -hmm. it's like it's like a it's like a villain stage piece right because that movie is filled with no redeemable likable characters and it's really gutsy for Tarantino to make a film where everyone in that movie is unlikable right which is why I don't think like, obviously, he's worked with Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio a lot. Obviously, Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Django Unchained is completely hateable and deplorable and one of... But yeah. delicious. But like, I mean, but yeah. like, like, yeah, of course, he's like, a, he's like a character you just love to hate. Yeah. But like, you don't see Brad Pitt in Hateful Eight. I don't know if Brad Pitt, they could put him in a spot where he's like unlikable. Brad Pitt would have played the Kurt Russell role, but yeah. Kurt Russell is older than Brad Pitt. You know what and, I mean? And you know what? I, I love Kurt Russell, man. I, oh, I Kurt went... Russell fucking rocks, and he's amazing in Death Proof. He's a great actor. He's great in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for like the <laughs> sure, minute, for his it? For his bit role, yeah. Stay mm-hmm. away from the car. <laughs> Quentin has made so many careers. He's remade uh, so many careers in terms of giving actors a second chance. Robert Forster, Pam Greer, uh, John Travolta, you know, actors that are kind of brought back from the brink of semi-obscurity or yeah. not in a great spot in their careers. And, and Quentin kind of makes them anew. Yeah. And he's also really been terrific with his women's roles in his yeah. films. Quentin's films are filled with just women kicking ass. And I'm not just talking about Uma Thurman. You know, I'm talking about Death Proof. I'm talking yeah. about just uh, tough uh, roles that you, you don't get to see women in a lot. Look at the Jennifer Jason Lee role in The Hateful Eight. Yeah, I mean, she spends a lot of the movie busted up, but what a what a vicious creature she creates in that role, which is really, really neat. I, just, yeah. I, I think he does women really well. Yeah, I think he does. And I think he just, it's because it's, it's it's the stuff he likes, man. That's what he wants to make. He wants to make characters like, yeah, I'm going to make a martial arts film, but the toughest person in the movie that's going to kick everyone and kick everyone's ass is, is going to be a woman. Yeah. And I, I love that. It's very comic booky, right? It's very anime and manga. It's like, you'll see those characters in manga all the time or even, even video games to a degree. It's like, mm, I love that. I love that Tarantino really sinks his teeth into that. But yeah, like you, man, I'm I'm with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's a movie I will watch anytime, even though it's super long. I will watch a five-hour cut. I will watch a six-hour cut. I'll sit down. I'll spend my day watching that movie if they put out more of it. I'm all about it. And then Pulp Fiction right behind it. And like you said, I love how he's revived careers. He's he's made yeah. unknowns well-known. He's taken people that we know so well and has completely like deconstructed them and then built them back up. Uh, and it's it's amazing the stuff. That's why actors want to work with him, because they know they're going to be challenged and they sure. know that they're going to give a career performance. Yeah, and you get a listers that are they accept roles that are 
uh, I don't want to say beneath them because to do a Tarantino movie is just totally divine, but they are kind of beneath them. Uh, I think immediately of Robert De Niro's character in Jackie Brown. He's not yeah. playing the leading male. He's playing no. a fucking schlub named Lewis. Yeah. You know, I think of uh, Al Pacino in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood it's playing Schwarz. It's a two scene character. And he's no, great. Uh, of some consequence. But he's brilliant at it. But I'm saying because Tarantino has established himself as being like the curator of the landscape of Hollywood history, he can kind of get anybody into any role and have it make sense. And then I called Mrs. Schwartz. <laughs> Pacino's fucking brilliant. He's just so good in that film. But you're right. You're right. It's like he, it, it's he, the film is his playground and he has the money and the willpower to really mold it to what exactly he wants to do. And there seems to be some power in that he seems, I don't know if he will stick to this, he seems to be announcing that there will be a finite number of films by Quentin Tarantino. The number we've been hearing for a while now is 10. 10. Mm -hmm. Of which that would mean he only has one film left, which sounds horrifying. I think by his logic, I'm going to paraphrase him, he's said in interviews that he never wants to become like the old man who's like old and out of touch and like the fans say about him, oh, it's good, but it's not as good as his earlier stuff. Right now, it's an exciting time to be a Quentin Tarantino fan because we have one left allegedly and for most of us we've just come off of the best one mm -hmm. we've just come off of his best movies so it's kind of like the dude's in his mid 50s or mid to late 50s and he's just made like his best movie uh, yeah. so it's, it's we're in a weird spot with him a weird great spot also we're probably going to get a kill bill volume three which doesn't count if that doesn't count that would be awesome kill bill apparently is one movie is how he considers it. All the Kill Bill stuff is one film. So okay, he doesn't well, consider that. And I know there's been a lot of rumors and fan 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 casting on the internet how they want that movie to go, but that's something maybe we should talk about at a different time. But I think it's time to get involved with the pitch or oh, with our right. pitches. So what what are you feeling? You want to go first? You want me to go first? I really don't know. And you know what's funny is that we've both, for, for the benefit of the listeners, Mike and I have been going back and forth all week like oh my pitch is so weird it's but, but we also have this fear that's in 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 our recording right now that our pitches are going to be actually super similar to each other so there's actually like a little bit of nervous energy on the podcast for definitely maybe the first time because mostly for the most part how about this is a podcast where we're just letting you guys listen in on conversations mike and i would be having in mike's basement anyway yes but for today i i it's not that i feel like it's more formal but i feel like i, I don't know i feel like the energy of fate has like surrounded us and like i don't know what's gonna happen well if our pitches are different like super different wholly different awesome if our pitches are the same we'll just make one movie it's fine yeah i mean we might be able money. to do that anyway yeah why not <laughs> i mean why not you know. so, so who wants to go first if if you want to get it out of the way now get it out of the way now or if you want me to go to give you some time to like i don't know i i I'm fine to go first. I, I didn't want to be like, fuck you, I'm going first. So whatever. I mean, if I you feel want to like, go first, I'll do it. No, here's 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 how it is. I feel like yours will probably be uh, more, Not I don't want to say thought out, but definitely uh, better written. <laughs> oh, don't, don't be like that. Your pitches are fucking awesome, man. I, I, well, thank you. But I'm not I'm not just saying that to be modest. It's just, you know, it's just the way I, I think about it. Up to you, man. What do you want to do? We don't we'll right, cut, no, we'll call I'll, this up. I'll do it. I'll do it. All right, let's go. Okay. Pitch me. How about this? Oh, yeah. It's 1982. The film is set in Studio City, Los Angeles. Love it. And here is the A plot of the film. Okay. Michael Keaton plays Buddy. 
and he is the head of security at a major motion picture company. We don't need to use a real studio company for this. I'll make up a name. Silver Point Studios would be fine. Perfect. Michael Keaton, who I've, I've loved since Jackie Brown, but never thought he got the role that he deserved, is uh, more or less a motion picture detective. In terms of personality, I almost want you to think this is more in line with like a Max Cherry from Jackie Brown type character than something more flashy. Uh, but the idea is that nobody gets on the lot without his permission. And also he's into everybody's business. I mean, he's the head of security in a major motion picture studio. That's a, that's a big job. So he knows everybody that steps onto the property and, and he does his best to know everything about him. Like even if somebody gets like accused of something, murder, whatever, it's Buddy's job to kind of look into it and, and protect the studio. And like a lot of Quentin Tarantino heroes, Buddy is an old fashioned guy. He smokes a pipe full of red apple tobacco. He <laughs> listens to old music. You know, he's a war vet. So I'm thinking like 1950s tunes, especially like doo-wop, men on the corner type stuff. Yeah. And we're frequently in and out of Buddy's car, which is very specifically a sleek, tan 1949 Cadillac. And it's going to kind of stand out against the shitbox 1980s cars that would otherwise be parked around the lot at the time. So we can tell, like, this is a man out of time, the typical Tarantino-esque hero, right? And Buddy tells anyone who will listen to him that he was a stuntman once upon a time until a bad crash back in the day left him with this limp. So the character limps around. And we can guess from Buddy's age and manner that, you know, he probably had his heyday back in the 1950s. So I'm going to give like a rough sketch of the film. I don't have everything finely detailed. Some stuff I have very specifically, some stuff very general. So we see Buddy in the beginning of the film on his daily walk of the back lots and the offices that uh, kind of paints a picture of what goes on at this particular movie studio. So we see actors and writers and technicians and designers and producers, and they're all hard at work all on different films. And I wanted these films to each sort of a, sort of play an homage to other Tarantino films. Uh, so as he's walking through, these aren't parodies, but these are other films that might've been produced in the early eighties at this time at a studio, right? So he's walking through the set of like an action crime thriller, a Western, there's even, you know, a war epic. And there's a couple of other films that might be at the studio that maybe Tarantino hasn't worked on, right? Like a big ballroom romance musical or a horror flick, right? And he's walking through and he's just doing his job and everybody greets Michael Keaton with a smile and, and, and Buddy's gotten them all out of, the, out, of the, out of some pretty serious scrapes, you know, in his day. And this is key, Buddy's close to retirement. And he's sharing a lot of jokes with a lot of people on set about, how he's he's ready to hang up his gun and ID badge. Uh-oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> he's just two weeks from retirement. Well, that's the idea. <laughs> We're going to start to take our left turn, but it's not a hard left. And let's see if you, Mike, and the listener can, can get on to where I'm going in terms of the Tarantino groove. All right, so the studio is currently undergoing some upheaval. I want to do a little bit of commentary here on the sharp decline of the American cinema from the 70s into the 1980s. It's kind yeah. of the end of the auteur era. The Hollywood corporate machine has reasserted itself and, and the movie brats have kind of lost their way as the studios have kind of consolidated everything and now everybody just wants to be Star Wars, right? The Hollywood Renaissance is dead. It's not an auteur-driven cinema anymore. They just want big franchises and... Buddy doesn't like what he's seeing. And this includes upheaval at the studio following some unwise business decisions. I don't know, maybe somebody fucking made Heaven's Gate or something. I don't know. It's a disaster. Uh, and now the studio has actually been purchased by corporate investors from Eastern Europe. And they are very gradually starting to like move into the studio and show up like in their influence uh, and power. And Buddy figures, you know, hey, 
it's not my business. It's not even the first time the studio has changed hands since I've been here. But all the same, I'm sort of melancholy to see the end of my tenure in Hollywood and the 70s changing into the 80s and so on and so forth. But he doesn't like the new music. He doesn't like the new scene. Uh, He's not down with it. Now, these Eastern Europeans, they are (laughs) Slavic, it seems. They are the epitome of 80s cool, 80s fashion, 80s music. I don't know, fucking techno pop and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, They're the cutting edge. And perhaps because Buddy hates what they represent, or perhaps because he's just retiring, Buddy does not investigate them maybe as thoroughly as he ought to. And, And anyway, he's distracted by some other things. You see, aha, a girl has gone missing. Uh oh. And her name is Rose. And this particular girl is actually played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Uh, oh, who, yeah. Who She's awesome. A, yeah. And she played a small role in Death Proof. So I yes. thought it'd be nice to bring her back. Also, she has very nice feet. You're welcome, uh, Gwen. Ramona Flowers. Uh, that's right. She's disappeared off of this action thriller. An action thriller, like very similar to like Sudden Impact or like one of those Clint yeah, 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 uh, yeah. type yeah. movies. Now, this particular movie is directed by and starring Kurt Russell. And yes. he's playing like the badass cop Clint Eastwood role, but he's also the director. So he's like very upset that this actress is, is gone and he's friends with Buddy. So he's like, we, we got to find this girl. Is she doing drugs? Is she out in LA somewhere? Is she up in the hills? We, we got to find her. And the disappearance really bothers Buddy because something like that hasn't really happened in a while. And it's starting to draw some press. Now, there's this guy at the studio who's kind of a shitbag, and his name is Rendon. And he's played by Mike Myers, as in like Wayne's World, Mike Myers, who was also in Inglorious Bastards. Yes, he was. Uh, and he's this really affable guy, and he's kind of like the press head of the studio, and he's trying to like cover up the disappearances. And he's just a real glad-handed asshole type. Buddy can't stand him. But he hopes that Buddy maybe kind of solves this and keeps it quiet. So the studio has opted to replace this girl, Rose, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, with uh, a girl named Irina, who's played by, of course, Mike, who's who's it played by? Anya Taylor-Joy. Anya Taylor-Joy. Hey! A- good old ATJ. ATJ. Now, she is from this Eastern European group, right? And rumor has it she's actually the girlfriend of Ilyich Kooligan. Oh, right. Who is the new unseen head of the studio. He's a very mysterious guy. All right. Mike, do you know where I'm going with this? Uh, no. You, you want some more? All right. Yeah. Oh, I definitely want some All right. more. So here, here comes the giveaway in the next thought out scene. Yes. So Buddy's got an ex-wife because of fucking course, of course he does. Of course right? he does. And Buddy's ex-wife, Lorraine, of course. Of course. Who's played by <laughs> Jennifer Jason Lee. Of course. Okay. Uh, she works at the studio. She's a chain smoking, foul mouth editor who spends like basically all of her time in the sub basements of the film studio trying to like spin straw into gold for any number of these high powered producers and directors on the lot. Well, she's noticed something really strange about the new footage from a horror feature on set called After Dark. It's the way the lead actor in that movie, who's played by Tim Roth as a character named Alistair Price, the way he moves through some of the frames. Sometimes it's like he's blurry no matter what she does. And at first she thinks it's just some kind of problem with her equipment or the film. And so when she holds up the film to get a closer look, the fucking film reel bursts into flames. She tells Buddy about it, and Buddy just kind of blows off her findings, though it's clear in the subtext of the scene he's trying to reconcile with her. He still loves this woman. By the way, Roth uh, plays Alistair Price, who's like this British actor who, like, everybody believed his career was washed up and he was down and out until suddenly, like, his name resurfaced. And he, like, looks great, and it's like his career has been given a second life. life. Surely these new mysterious Eastern European producers are to thank. Are they... Are they... Go ahead. Are they vampires? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I am doing a very slow lead into a Quentin Tarantino vampire film. Okay, so let's just full disclosure, we picked the same, <laughs> the same genre. Sort of. So okay. we're not that That's similar. Okay. We're not That's that okay. similar. I, I was terrified you were like, I fucking made Dusk Till Dawn too. You know, no, no, I, no, 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 no. All right. So here's here's where it would have been revealed if you hadn't already got it, but you did. This is the most Tarantino thing in my movie, by the way. Buddy hangs out in a tiki bar called Maydays. I love it. It's and great. It's run by an old war vet named Ellis, who's played by Samuel L. Jackson. Of course. Okay. And they were they're like World War II veteran buddies. He's and Ellis is like a badass World War II veteran, saw a lot of action in the Pacific theater, and he came home with this beautiful Polynesian wife named May, uh, hence May Days, right? Yep. So Buddy tells Ellis about, you know, Lorraine's findings on the back lots and also some things that he's seen. You know, I, I can't mention every scene, obviously. Of course not. And Ellis just gives like him one long look and he's like, oh, y'all got some motherfucking vampires, <laughs> right? He just, he knows. And Buddy laughs it off, but Ellis is like very serious. So Ellis and his wife, May, they become like our Bagul experts yeah. in this movie. <laughs> they know everything about vampires. They saw vampires when they were fighting down in the South Pacific. May has firsthand experience. And basically Ellis tells Buddy about all the telltale signs to look out for with these vampires. And Buddy doesn't want to believe him, but there are some compelling arguments. You can't see him on film, that's for sure. That, that it, There is a problem with the film. Yeah, you know, so that that's the first thing. So we're going to put a pin in that because that's the A plot. Okay. B plot. Margaret Qualley, who was was featured as a character named Pussycat mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. She's actually Andy McDowell's daughter. Yeah. So she plays Max and she is my girl who's like up and coming in Hollywood. I mean, she's like a young actress just getting her start. And she lives in like this terrible L.A. apartment with her girlfriends, Chantal, who's played by Zendaya. Of course. Oh, yes. uh, of right. course. She's in my movie, too. Yep. Oh, nice. <laughs> and Lulu, who's played by Maya Hawk. OK. Yeah. Uh, so Max is like psyched because things in her career are finally going her way. And she started doing off some like, you know, low tier kind of CD modeling. But her agent has finally hooked her up with an audition for this big time producer, Ilyich Kooligan. Uh oh! just took over Silver Point Studios. And Max has no idea whether she's going to get this part or not, but she's been invited to this huge party in the Hollywood Hills. And damn it, she's going to make something out of the evening. And her friends decide to come along. Here's where we get like our Kill Bill part of the plot. So the party is hosted by this like charming, like Errol Flynn type played by Michael Fassbender. Oh, great. And uh, he happens to be starring in Sunset Hill, which is like the aforementioned ballroom dance musical on the lot. So maybe we saw him before. And he attempts to lure her with his wiles, but you know, it doesn't pan out with him. Instead, she gets invited upstairs by Irina at the behest of Cooligan himself. And it seems like she's going to be like the producer's guest of honor, if you know Ooh, what I mean. Yeah. So things go from bad to worse. Hypnotic charms. Yeah. As what maybe she anticipates is going to end up being a sexual encounter is actually a deadly one because as it turns out, yeah, Cooligan is fucking Dracula, right? <laughs> he attacks her, drains her body of blood. And when her friends try to go and rescue her, they also get attacked by Cooligan and his little cabal and they fucking die. It will be later revealed that only Max has survived something Cooligan and his vampire producer Stooges will come to regret. All right, so now we're going to tie our little plots together here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be brief in the wrap-up because I've already gone on too long. Other deadly accidents on set, having a lot of fun, other disappearances. It finally becomes too much for the studio to cover, even with Rendon, Mike Myers covering up things on the press side. Yeah, uh, baby. 
<laughs> That's right. So one night, Buddy actually sees Max attacking a hapless actor on the Western set. Let's go with, I don't know, Eli Roth is some big cowboy. And he pulls her off of him. It's too late. That guy's fucking dead, but whatever. And he's fighting her and he, he realizes kind of who she is. Maybe he's seen her around and they have a scene together where he realizes, you know, two things are clear. One, vampires are fucking real. Yeah. Okay. And two, this girl's actually a victim who like needs his help. And maybe that would be developed over a longer part of the story. So now we have kind of a team, right? Yeah. Lorraine can identify who the vampires are on the lot, at least the ones in front of the camera by deducing from her film reels who may or may not be a vampire. And we have like a fighting team now between Buddy and of course, Ellison May and Max potentially going up against Rendon, against Irina, against Alistair Price, and finally against Cooligan who I'm proud to announce is played by Christoph Waltz. Oh, yeah. When you're casting Dracula, you, you don't, don't pass up Christoph you Waltz. You don't. If you can get Dracula, if you can get a Waltz Dracula, that's perfect. I love oh, it. Absolutely. So I think my final bloodbath takes place back up in the Hollywood Hills, back up at the Michael Fassbender character's house. And I, I want this to be reminiscent of the end of like Dust Till Dawn or better, the end of Django. This is like Candyland times 10. Yeah, with vampires. And you know, I, I think I'm seeking, uh, you know, not for the first time with Tarantino, like a, a gloriously happy ending. Yeah. The vampires are slain. Uh, Michael Keaton's buddy ends back with uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's Lorraine, right? Max lives and she's going to have to like figure out her life as like this new hot actress vampire who will live forever, right? And Ellison may go back to running their tiki bar, but now they're going to be looking out for vampires in the future because they know that they've kind of invaded the town. I love it. So I, I have titled my film, which would be the 10th Quentin Tarantino film, which I'm sure it'll be nothing like this. It is called Perfect Midnight. Oh, yeah. I love uh, it. So that, that is my Quentin Tarantino film. Congrats. I, I think when I was thinking about this, I was like not just considering Tarantino like his main nine films. I was also thinking about like the bastard Tarantino projects like Dust Till Dawn obviously yeah yeah of course and i was thinking of i was thinking a little bit of true romance yeah, and a little bit of natural yeah. born killers but his not stuff. so much his other stuff so i wanted something that was it, it actually started off very artful and becomes very sort of tasteless bloodbath destroy all vampires like that kind of thing i love it because i haven't seen a tarantino horror film and i would i would love to see that it now i think it's amazing and I think you and I were thinking similar things uh, when I fucking knew it. I knew when, we were gonna, like, on at least the same book. You so, know? How, so how about this? Let's do it. Tarantino loves bringing back old dead genres, right? And you've seen this. Yeah. You've just done this with with a vampire horror movie. But there's a genre out there that T Tarantino hasn't touched, and obviously horror is a big genre. But what are the cheesiest of the horror movies that aren't like? body horror what are the movies that had 30 sequels well my movie oh. is a quentin tarantino yeah go is it is it, it is it a werewolf movie no oh i'm i'm disappointed can you also make a tarantino werewolf movie? yeah after this <laughs> i think quentin tarantino likes to base things mostly in some degree of reality even when his stories are more fantastic so i want quentin tarantino to make a slasher film okay a bloody slasher film i'm a slasher of prices, prices. <laughs> so my movie opens up with, I would say that this is probably the end of the film. It opens up with the slasher is still masked and he's a big, ugly looking slasher guy, you know, almost like a Jason Voorhees or a Michael Myers, like a big supernatural lug yeah. of a guy sitting down in a pool of blood with a big knife in his hand and he's breathing heavily 
and you hear you hear like police sirens start to fill the landscape and um, he's just sitting there just kind of waiting and it's one of those tarantino shots where there's probably some music playing over it almost like a hey you know this is like the end of this guy's rope and then we zoom out and we zoom back into another scene it's a very similar scene but you see a young person sitting outside of a crash like early 1990s car breathing heavily. He's got one of those red apple cigarettes and the police are talking to him, but like he's lost all focus, right? He can't focus. Mm -hmm. And uh, another young guy comes up to him and he like pats him on the back and says, Hey, we're going to get you out of this. And then it fades away to the opening of a small independent movie theater in Hollywood. Now my main plot is that a small independent movie theater in Hollywood probably would use the new Beverly because that's his theater. Yeah, his theater, yeah. His theater um, is owned and run by and operated by an older out-of-work actor. This actor was kind of shunned from the industry in the early 1990s due to him being framed for manslaughter of a co-star when he was like at the height of his career while he was still married to someone else. And the co-star who died, died in a car accident, and he was framed because he was the driver. They had framed him that he was on some degree of drugs. He was on alcohol. He was drunk. He was all this stuff. So he got framed for vehicular manslaughter. And this caused his ostracization uh, from Hollywood and out of the inner circle. And then he spent all of so much of his resources trying to clear his name, but no one would work with him. No one would touch him. And his wife at the time had divorced him because she didn't believe a word he said. And he had this kind of career that was getting to like finally start to really break out. Like he'd made a lot of money, but it finally started to break out. And he's obviously spiraled, right? He spiraled into some sort of degree of depression. And he did spend a little bit of time in prison. Oh, of course. And due to his names and his connections within Hollywood, uh, he was able to serve a much reduced sentence based on what happened. You know, you get through the story of the movie that he purchased this movie theater as a way to show the films that he loves and possibly show his old films and to, you know, just kind of keep the lights on. He lives there and he's a fan of like the older movies, mo- older movies. He's got fans that come. They treat it as almost like a, like some sort of like visit to Mecca. They take pictures with him. And obviously there's a bunch of people that'll take pictures with this guy. And he'll be oh, like, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also like, he's got a stardom still. He's got like a niche stardom. He still has like a, a very cult fan base. Yeah. But he's almost like a roadside attraction yes, at this yes, point. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah. like you got people who take pictures with him and be like, I don't believe you did anything wrong. I don't think you did it. Stuff oh, like that. Stuff like that. Yeah, I like it. What does Quentin Tarantino do? Quentin Tarantino finds actors who are past their prime. He finds actors that he he takes actors from obscurity and brings them back. If an actor anywhere needs a second chance at acting, Tarantino is the type of guy who brings them into the back into the limelight and gives them a performance that will only not only revitalize their career, but it will make people remember why they were so good in the first place. In this movie, I don't have a named character because I'm not good with names. But in this movie, this actor is played by Johnny Depp. Oh, Johnny Depp yes. obviously had a very, very, very noticeable <laughs> yeah. fall from grace in Hollywood. <laughs> He's had a rough go. <laughs> He's had a rough decade, right? The guy has essentially lost his entire career. And Tarantino also likes to work with characters that are somewhat autobiographical or somewhat biographical in this instance. And, oh, and, for sure. Yeah. And Depp's character similar to Depp in real life, was the lead in a, in a series of 1980s slasher movies all centered around, centered around the festival of, listen, it's spelled out Samheim. I know it's like Selwyn is how it's actually pronounced. I don't know how pretentious- You are offending be. all of our Wiccan listeners 
I'm sorry. <laughs> sometimes the movies got supernatural. Sometimes they had some kind of, you know, whatever. But it was all tied around, similar to Halloween, similar to, to Nightmare on Elm Street, similar to Friday the 13th. They all focused around some giant supernatural slasher murderer. I and prefer the real Ghostbusters pronunciation, which is just Sam Hain. Sam Hain. All right, so we're going to call it Sam Hain. So all you, pe- Hain. All you people out there, don't get upset with me. So Johnny Depp had made, uh, Johnny Depp's character had made four of these movies. And after Sam Hain 4, Depp was starting to, wanting to, Depp's character was starting to want to branch out and get away from the series. And then I'm going to have it that when he's younger, he witnesses some sort of horrific event on set that a movie producer perpetrates, whether it's some sort of, you know, whether it's some sort of, Something Weinstein. Yeah, something in the Weinstein, Weinstein kind of realm. I don't know if I want it to be a murder, but I want it maybe to be something along those lines. And definitely, no, I, I think that's great. Actually, we we kind of came at it from the same angle because I have a yeah. devilish producer in mind as well. Of I course, think we're both kind of addressing Quentin's problems with Harvey Weinstein, which are well noted. Exactly, definitely, and I think he witnesses something like that happen. And he promises to keep his mouth shut if they'd let him out of the contract. However, you don't screw over a movie producer in Hollywood in Quentin Tarantino's universe. So that's when they decide to set him up. They decide to set him up for manslaughter. And I don't have a name for like the murderer of these Samhain movies, like the big Michael Myers or Jason style murderer. I've got it. He's kind Sam of Sam Hain. Sam Hain. That works. <laughs> so what ends up happening too is that they continue to make the movies and they replace. Johnny Depp's character with a younger new actor in the late 1990s where they make Sam Hain five through seven, which happens over the course of 1997 through like 2000, 2001. And of course he's played by Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> okay. So a little what's eating Gilbert grape action. Yeah. So uh, he character, he, and then because of that, he, DiCaprio's character was never that good, but he was really good at production directing. So he starts to get into that side of things. And Leo, he becomes over time, he becomes a, a incredibly powerful film producer over the next 20 years. And he's amassed like this Titanic fortune. And in the current time that we're in right now, now in the, in the 2020s, he's looking to reboot the Sam Hain movies. He's looking to bring them back because obviously reboot culture is all the rage these days. We're rebooting everything. Um, I have Johnny Depp's ex-wife, has become a big star in Hollywood since then. And pretty much like everywhere he goes in Hollywood, he's reminded of how- To be clear, this is not played by Amber Heard. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Definitely not. A different ex-wife. Yeah, well, it's not his actual ex-wife. Oh, I'm sorry, the character's ex-wife. I'm sorry. Yes, the character's like Johnny Depp's character's ex-wife is currently a a giant star in Hollywood. And everywhere he goes, he's reminded of like how he was kind of manhandled by the industry, how they robbed him. And he's had very few friends in Hollywood and has spiraled into depression and continued substance abuse. You know, I would look for someone who's around the same age as Johnny Depp, someone in her late 50s that, you know, could really be, I don't really know of a good casting but someone who could really fit that role of kind of like this superstar in her late 50s uh, as a Hollywood actress. And some at some point, she comes to him because she actually comes across something that puts some light onto his whole life situation and that he was kind of set up and framed for manslaughter. And he's like, I don't want to do anything with this. No, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. Please just stay away from this. I tried to fight it before and look what happened. I also want Brad Pitt in this movie. But I I don't think, of course, but I don't think Brad Pitt plays a major part. I think he plays a small part 
where he's Johnny Depp's friend. He's the guy from the beginning of the movie who comes up to him and says, we're going to get you out of this. And I think he was instrumental in getting him out of this. And I wanted him to become like the Quentin Tarantino insert in this movie. The guy who's gone on to continue to make the films he's wanted to make and just do all wacky, crazy stuff and have a lot of fun with it and kind of be that kind of insert. And the the whole his whole life, right? He's been trying to get this Johnny Depp character to come back to acting. Just let me give you a shot. Let me give you a shot. And he's just done with it. I think at some point what ends up happening is Johnny Depp's character, his his ex-wife ends up upsetting the wrong people by being too vocal about what happens and she's murdered mm. by some sort of studio exec. And it's or at this maybe point maybe by Sam Hain. Maybe by Sam Hain himself. Mm. And then at this point Depp's character goes, "You know what? That's it. You know what? Now it's a revenge movie." Pause on that for a second. I got a side plot Oh, yeah. And my side plot obviously stars the young actors in their mid-20s because that's always the side plot. So you have your you have your Anya Taylor-Joy and your Zendaya. who Right, are, are, are two overlapping actors. In of our, course, of course, right. who are friends from New York who fly out to California to get jobs working in film. All right, so they're getting extra work. They're getting auditions for like bit parts in these commercials and TV shows and all this stuff. You get to see that real young actor experience. But to pay the bills, they both work at that movie theater. Oh. They work okay. at his movie theater. So he kind of, you know, sometimes gives them some advice on how to get through Hollywood, you know, what to stay away from, get involved in I, horror I, movies I, young. I have a question. So does this movie theater in particular, does it run like horror movie festivals and stuff like that? I think so. I think like Grindhouse stuff and like horror movie stuff and it. the Sam Hain movies. Can at some point the girls and guys that work there, can they wear like the old timey Usher and Usherette costumes? Oh, ab- absolutely. I Fuck think, yes. I think now I'm, I'm all in. Now on special nights, yeah, special occasions, you can do that, the young people who work for this film. Hell yes. And I think what ends up happening is that he says to them, you know what, you guys should get involved. Horror is a great way, a great first step for any young actor. And they get involved in the reboot of Samhain <laughs> as the young people who are going to get chased by this giant monster man. So they all get cast in the Samhain remake, reboot. I, I want a group of young actors to be involved in this. And I want like our, some of our favorite young actors, you know, your Anya Taylor-Joy, your Zendaya. I actually am a big fan. I like Timothy Charlemagne. I think get him in there. I like Tony Revolori from Spider-Man movies. I think he's awesome. Also, why not throw in there like a like Haley Steinfeld or Chloe Grace Barretts? Like this is like your young horror um, movie. Quad. They're all going to die. Oh, t- totally. Yeah, totally. And what I want to happen is a strange string of murders start happening. How strange was it? strange thing of murders start happening and they're very reminiscent of the Samhain movies. Mm. Almost as if Hollywood directors, producers, actors, people that were involved in all sorts of underhanded Hollywood deals start getting murdered. Similarly (laughs) to how the Samhain monster murdered all those people in those movies back in the day. And I want the movie to kind of be essentially, and it's obvious, right? that the guy we saw at the beginning of the movie is that killer. And which, it's obvious. Which guy? The, just the big guy? The big guy. But at the end of the movie, you end up finding out that it's it's just Johnny Depp has finally taken Oh, no, I was hoping he to be the hero. He is the hero. He's killing all the bad guys. Oh, oh. 
Oh, he's, he's not, not killing the kids. He's not killing the kids. No, okay. no, no. The kids are fine. He's killing the bad guys. He's going after like the producers that screwed him over, the producers that killed his ex-wife, and, oh. the, and the people that got him out of Hollywood. So he's become Sam Hain. He's become Sam Hain. Spirit and, of vengeance. And instead of seeing the kids, to go back to what I said before, I don't really think we need to see the kids actually die in this movie. I think we need to see the kids kind of maybe not help or work out with him, but like maybe do something along right. the lines because they work for him at the movie theater. Maybe they find out that he's the guy doing it. Maybe like, you know, what? we're going to take Hollywood back. Yeah. Maybe they, we could see them die in the movie that yes. they're in. Yes. That's exactly what I wanted to happen. They get killed in the movie and the new Sam Hain movie that they're in by the new Sam Hain monster. But I also want to see one of the first murder scenes in the film. I wanted to be at a party at a big Hollywood mansion that all these young actors are invited to. And then I wanted to be a total gore fest that the Sam Hain oh, yeah. monster breaks in and like kills all these people. And some of the kids don't, don't die, but obviously you get to see like the fear on their faces and they get to run away from this guy as he kills their director, as he kills the producer, right? Of this, of, of some of the producers of this film that screwed him over 20, 30 years ago, you get to kind of see that. And they think it's all part of the film because this director is known for being crazy and doing these crazy like method acting based scenes and stuff. They think it's all part of the movie. So they like lean into it and then they realize it's not part of the movie and it's actually people getting murdered. So obviously they escape and, and whatever, but you get to see those points where maybe like he's chasing them around and they're terrified and things like that. Yeah. I and then love that. obviously at the, you get to the end of the movie and by the end of the movie, you have your standoff at the movie theater between Johnny Depp's character and Leonardo DiCaprio's character. And Leonardo DiCaprio's character obviously gets killed in some giant bloodbath. And of course, of course. And then left behind is Johnny Depp with the murder weapon sitting in his theater in a, in a, in three inches of blood with the mask on. And he just pulls the mask off and it's just like, it is done. I've finally got my revenge. I don't care if they kill me. I don't care if they arrest me. I finally have paid back those people for what they've done to me. And I want a really great thriller soundtrack, a, th a thriller slasher soundtrack, a lot of great 80s stuff, a lot of great dark 80s stuff, a lot of great like 70s, like wow. horror stuff. I wanted to, to pull from Psycho. I wanted to pull from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I wanted to pull from uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween and these movies that like are, are so instrumental. And obviously there's going to be a big party dance drug scene. There's obviously going to be a dinner scene at some sort of diner or restaurant, <laughs> all right? There's going to be a gratuitous amount of blood. We're going to see some sort of cameo for Tim Roth, and we're going to see some sort of cameo from Sam Jackson himself because you can't have – you can have Tarantino movies without Sam Jackson, but I don't want that to ever happen ever again. So Sam Jackson is also going to be in this movie, and it's a revenge movie. It's a horror movie. It's a movie that really takes place within Hollywood – and I'm calling the movie for now, I'm calling it Hollywood Psycho because, okay. because Tarantino loves to take names of from other movies that have existed before. Hateful Eight is the Magnificent Seven. Inglorious Bastards is the Inglorious Bastards, stuff like that. So his love for Psycho as a film. And what I really want, and the reason why I want the audience to know that it's Depp early on is the actual killer, is because Tarantino loves making you root for this psychopath. <laughs> He loves turning the audience around and saying, this guy is a lunatic. I want the audience to root for him because in the end, he never did anything wrong. And yes, he's doing terrible things, but we want to see these guys in Hollywood get their own.
Yeah. But that's huh. my movie. I fucking love that. I thought that was great. I particularly just love the set piece of the New Beverly movie theater. Yes. Being used as a central location in the film with like washed up has been Johnny Depp actor character running yeah. it. Yeah. What I liked especially, and you kind of lighted on this in your pitch, was the idea that maybe this is a place where tourists stop in to kind of like check yeah. in with him. And yeah. you know what? If you're running special events at that theater, that's where you open up all your opportunities for cameos, right? So of if course. you're having like the horror movie marathon, bring back some of those directors that directed those movies. Yeah. That's where you bring in your Tim Roth, your Sam yeah. Jackson, your Michael Madsen, your Uma yeah. Thurman's, whoever, you know. As the actors yeah. and directors that starred in those films from, from yesterday, they're like they were his contemporaries, and now he doesn't work with them anymore. Exactly, per precisely what I was trying to go for with that. And I would love to fit Margot Robbie in. I, I hope that she becomes a a Quentin Tarantino person because I think I'm she's sure awesome. She uh, I think she's awesome, and I just didn't know where to fit her in at this point because she's like not the right age to be like one of the older folks and she's not the right age to be one of the younger folks. So it's like, I don't know, maybe she's just some actress that happens to be involved somehow, or maybe she's a director or something that happens to be involved somehow. I don't know. I would like to put her in the film as well, but I'm not sure, yeah. but that's our pitches, man. They were great. We both went horror and I love it. I love it. I thought this was great. We, I was looking for opportunities. I was like, can these two films work together? But I don't think so. I think they're I don't just, think so. Even though they're both the same kind of flavor, <laughs> they're just, they're just different enough where we can't combine, but I, yes. We had a lot very much in common. The genre was in common. We used a couple of the same actors. We, we both kind of picked the 80s because horror in the 1980s is like, of course. The best. But it, I knew it. I was, I was actually afraid it was going to be a lot more similar. And I was like, I fucking, I know Mike loves from dusk till dawn and this would be a fucking thing. <laughs> no, uh, so I didn't go vampire. I'm happy we, we went in that direction or separate direction slightly. Uh, so that was great. Either way, man, a lot of fun. There's a lot of fun with this kind of love letter to Quentin Tarantino. So we got to thank Quentin for that for making these movies that have inspired us to be creators all these years. And we're so excited to see what he wants to do next. But Jordan, man, thank you so much, dude. You did a lights out job. You are the best Tarantino Dracula. Oh, and, and you are the big kahuna of my dreams. Wow, that's really good. <laughs> I, I want a new take on that. You know what, fuck it, just leave it. <laughs> do, you have a, do, you, can, do you have a beverage that I could use to wash that down? Uh, I have plenty of Diet Coke here for you. Oh, I have Diet Coke as well. So there All we right, go. Very nice. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of How About List, where we talked about Quentin Tarantino. Please be sure to check out all of our episodes. We're on Facebook now. We're on Instagram now, but you're going to get that stuff in the post show. I've been Mike Staub. For me, Jordan, thank you so much, man. You're the best. You're always awesome. It always lights out good. All right, everyone. We'll see you next time. <laughs> Goodbye. And thank you so much for listening. Jordan and I had an absolute blast recording that episode, if you couldn't tell. I hope you enjoyed it too. I hope some of these ideas are fun and get you to go out and watch some of these movies again because they're all fun. They're all good. We even like the ones that people don't like as much because we love Quentin Tarantino. So we want to thank him for his amazing filmography and all these amazing films that we grew up with and we still continue to watch to this day. And we also want to thank you for listening to all these podcasts. We've been having an absolute blast doing these podcasts and talking about all these series that we love so much. And we are so excited for what we have starting next week. Next week starts the summer of Slam. So get ready for some of the wackiest, most fun, most ridiculous episodes that we could think of. And we're starting with a very strange, very niche property when we're talking about the company Capcom who makes the Street Fighter and Mega Man games and Resident Evil games. We're talking about Capcom Pro 
wrestling, we figured that there was no better follow-up to Quentin Tarantino than a bunch of big cartoon characters beating the snot out of each other. But in the meantime, please check us out on Facebook, check us out on Twitter, check us out on Instagram, at HowAboutThisPod. You can find us on the socials. Be sure to leave some comments. We're posting all the time about our podcast. We're posting about things that we like and things that we love, so be sure to comment. And please, if you don't mind, subscribe, comment, and like these episodes because the more comments you leave, the more ratings you leave, it just makes us that much more visible to all the other people out there on the internet. So for Jordan Hugh, I'm Mike Staub. Thank you so much once again for listening to this episode, and we are ready to kick the summer off next week. So get ready to slam. <laughs>